Well, I invite you to open your Bibles uh, with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter's first letter that he wrote to these uh, believers scattered throughout modern day Turkey. And this morning we'll be looking at verses 22 through 25 again. And we'll be looking primarily at what Peter says are the reasons for our love for one another. So I'll begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. So as I read uh, the Word of God, I remind you again, this is God's inspired Word, so please listen in reverence and in faith. Verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently, Love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. May God bless the reading of it. Last week we kind of dove into verse 22 and focused our attention primarily on the main commandment of this section, which is to fervently love one another from the heart. And we looked at the importance of loving one another. As Christians, we should love everybody, especially those within the household of faith, which is Peter's focus in this verse. But that love is important. And Peter will emphasize this four times in this short letter, that we should love one another, love the brethren, love one another, greet one another with a brotherly love of kiss. Kiss of love, I guess I should say. And uh, that love is also the primary virtue of the Christian life. And we need to remember that because often our flesh resists the commitment of love, we need to be reminded and exhorted over and over again, love one another, love one another. Because oftentimes we don't do that. The works of the flesh, we're told by Paul in Galatians, is really the opposite of love. And we still struggle with the flesh at times. The works of the flesh are not love. They are immorality, a fake form of love, false love, enmities, strife, outbursts of anger, disputes, factions, not love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and all the other fruits. There are Flesh is naturally selfish, self-serving, but love is focused on the needs of other people. And as there is a battle within the believer, it's a battle that we can win because of the two reasons that Peter is going to give us in this passage. So now we're gonna we've looked at the commandment of loving, fervently loving one another from the heart. Now we're gonna back up and look at the context before it and after it and see what Peter says is the reasons why we can and should love one another fervently from the heart. 
Well, the very first reason that he gives is in the first part of verse 22. Basically, because you've been purified. That's why you're to love one another, because you've been purified. So he says in verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren then fervently love one another from the heart. So the first reason for our fervent love is that in obedience to the truth you have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Let's kind of break this down and see what what the reason actually is. So when he says in verse 22 that you have in obedience to the truth The truth here is the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's been in the context. Remember back up in verse 18, Peter talked about how you've been redeemed, talking to the church, you've been redeemed not with perishable things like gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and took our sins upon Him. The very sins that we would be judged for by a holy God, those sins were laid upon Christ and He suffered in our place as our substitute. And He bore God's wrath for our sin. And Peter says in verse 22 that you have an obedience to the truth, the truth of the Gospel, that Jesus Christ alone can forgive any sinner of all of their sins if they but repent and put their faith and trust. Now the obedience to the truth refers to that repentance and faith. Oftentimes faith, saving faith is referred to as an act of obedience. It's not a work, but we hear the Gospel that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve the judgment of God, but God in His love sent His Son to die on the cross. If you want the gift of forgiveness and eternal life, you must repent and believe. So the sinner obeys that call to repent and believe, and that's the obedience to the truth that he's talking about here in verse 22. So he's speaking to people who've done that. He says in verse 22, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls. So we have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ that he's referred to in the preceding context. And as a result of our faith, our obedience to the truth, our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been purified. Verse 22. The purification is a reference here to the forgiveness of all of our sins. Before we came to Christ, we were very impure. I was impure. I was weighed down with my own sin, with my own impurities, my own filthiness, my own rebellion, my own disobedience. But when I come to Jesus Christ, He purifies me. He forgives me of all of my sins. And the same with you when you come to faith in Christ. This word purified in the Greek is actually a perfect tense. The significance of that is that this is a completed event in the past. It's already occurred. It's already been accomplished. 
And you're living with the results in the present. That's a perfect tense. So he's referring to something that has already happened. to They've already been purified. And that's when they first came to faith in Jesus Christ. They have been purified. They've been cleansed. They have been washed by the blood of Christ. So that now they stand in the presence of God totally forgiven. What a glorious Gospel that we have. So we've been purified, forgiven, washed, cleansed. Our souls have been purified for what? A sincere love of the brethren. So in other words, when we hear the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Gospel is the good news of the love of God. That God loves sinners and sent His Son to die for those who would put their faith and trust in Him. So the good news of the Gospel is of God's love for sinners just like us. But that doesn't make any sense without the bad news of what I am by nature. By nature, I'm a sinner. By nature, I'm going to stand before God as my judge. That's the bad news. And against the bad news, the good news of the Gospel is, but, though you have sinned and broken God's law, and though you deserve the judgment of God, and will one day receive the judgment of God if you don't repent and believe, God in His love has provided the one and only sacrifice by which you can be saved and totally forgiven. And that is the love of God for sinners. It's John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. And that's what makes the bad news understandable and why we need the good news of the Gospel. Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates His own love toward us And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So His own love toward us, that's the good news. That while we were sinners, that's the bad news. Christ died for us, that's the good news again. Now when we obey the truth of the Gospel, we are responding to the love of God. Now the the law of God can't save anybody. We preach the law to expose sin, but you don't end with the law. You end with the love of God. It's the love of God that people respond to. That's the good news of the Gospel. The law of God only condemns. It points out our sin. It condemns us. But the good news of the love of God is what draws my heart to Christ. So we respond to the good news. The good news that God loves a sinner like me. And when by the grace of God we're able to repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, responding to God's love, that faith responds to God's love with love for God and love for other people. That's why he's saying you've been purified in verse 22. You have purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That sincere love of the brethren is the response of my faith to God's love for me as sinner. And we respond in love for other people. See, this is the glory of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. When God enables someone to believe that there's a cleansing of their soul, there's a changing of their soul, so that barriers are broken down. 
And when I put my, when I respond to God's love for me in the gospel, I'm responding to His love, and I'm responding in love in return to God for offering me this incredible gift. So that there is a love that the Spirit of God works within me that helps me to respond to God in repentance and faith. Where before I may have hated everybody, I may have been full of animosity with people, just don't like people. But when you come to the to faith in Christ and respond to God's love, there is embedded within our whole our hearts this love for God and love for others. And that's I think what he's referring to here in this first reason. The reason why you can fervently love one another from the heart is because in obedience to the truth, you have been purified for a sincere love of the brethren. You've responded to the Gospel. The Gospel of God's love. And now you understand that in the body of Christ, there is no racial difference. There's no economic difference. There's no uh, political or national difference. I should say no more Jew or Gentile. No more free, uh, free or slave. No more male or female. We're all one in Christ. So we love one another. Because in Christ we're all one. And that's, the, that's behind the sincere love of the brethren. You've been purified for that sincere love. So therefore, fervently love one another from the heart. So in summary of this first reason why we are to fervently love one another from the heart is that through your faith in the Gospel you've been purified for sincere love of the brethren. And that's the first reason Peter gives for why we should love one another. The second one is a little more involved. So look at verse 23. At the end of verse 23, 22, you have the main commandment, fervently love one another from the heart. The first reason is that you've responded to the Gospel. You've purified your souls for love of the brethren. And now verse 23, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again. So the new birth now is the second reason for why you're to love one another from the heart. You've been born again. You've had your heart changed. So if you look at verse 23, notice you have been born again. This is the passive voice. It means you didn't cause this to happen yourself. God did it. You were passive. God caused you to be born again. If you look back all the way back up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused you to be born again to a living hope. So it's the act of the Father that has caused you to be born again. But what he's talking about here in verse 23 is this event that we refer to being born again or regeneration. This regeneration where God plants in our spiritually dead hearts a new life that enables us to respond to the Gospel. Your heart's been changed. Before you, you had a heart of stone, Ezekiel 36. You heard the gospel, it just didn't make sense to me. I don't want that. But when God does that miracle, that heart transplant, suddenly my heart of stone now becomes a heart of flesh. It's alive, it's sensitive. I hear that I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. I agree with God that I have sinned and broken His command. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. I want to have eternal life and go to heaven. 
And now I'm sensitive because my heart has been changed. And I hear that Christ died for sinners just like me. And He offers me salvation and forgiveness if I put my faith and trust in Him. And I do that because my heart has been changed. So this is the second reason why we should fervently love one another from the heart. Because God has changed your hearts. You've been born again, verse 23. Now notice how he goes on to describe this born again, this new heart, this regeneration. He says it's not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. So you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. So let's stop for a second and ask ourselves, okay, what is this seed that Peter is referring to? You've been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. So what is the seed? Well, there's basically two answers the commentaries give. One is that the seed is the Word of God, which is emphasized later on in the verse through the living and enduring Word of God. So the seed is the Word of God. So in this sense, the seed would be like a seed you would cast onto the ground to plant a seed or grow a crop. And it's used that way in the Bible uh, on a number of, in a number of places. Uh, Christ, when He told the parable of the four soils, the sower went out and sowed the seed. And then later when Christ is interpreting the parable, He said the seed is the Word of God. So the seed here could just be a, another reference to the Scriptures, to the Word of God. So if this is the right view, this seed, this Word of God, is not the perishable kind of Word. It's the imperishable kind of Word. God's Word. Imperishable Word. So in this sense, the perishable seed or the perishable Word of man would be the idea is a Word that often fails. It's often frustrated. It doesn't last. It's perishable. Your speech and my speech is perishable seed. I mean, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't happen, it fails, it can be frustrated, it can be thwarted. But God's Word is imperishable, would be the idea. It never fails, it can never be frustrated, it lasts forever, it's imperishable. Nothing can kill it, nothing can destroy it. And then, he just further modifies that in the rest of verse 23 through the living and enduring Word of God. So that's a very popular view. That you've been born again of imperishable seed, which is the Word of God, the Gospel. The problem with this view is that there are two prepositions in verse 23. So look closely at verse 23 in your Bibles. You've been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, through the living and enduring Word of God. So of and through are two prepositions, and basically they mean different things. Okay? So the first view, that's the Word of God, says they mean the same thing. You're born of the Word and through 
the Word. In effect, is what it's saying. And again, that's possible. But these two prepositions normally have different ideas. The word of normally introduces the source of something. The word through, through the living and enduring Word of God is the means. So of is source, through is means. So follow me with this. So if that's the right view, that there is a distinction, then the seed could refer to something other than the Word of God and probably something like this. The new life that the Holy Spirit places within us. That's the seed. That's the source of our regeneration. The means of it is through the Word of God. But the source of your regeneration, the source of your new birth, is the work of the Spirit implanting new spiritual life into your soul. That's the seed. That would be the idea of the seed. So, again, the idea would be that we are born again not of perishable seed, i.e. physical birth, which is a corruptible, perishable seed of man, which makes us mortal, which makes us die, but rather we are born again of something that the Holy Spirit imparts to us. The new life that the Holy Spirit plants within our soul, that's the seed. It's the new life that the Spirit of God implants and causes you to be born again. Causes us to be born again. So again, if that's the right view, that the seed refers to this new spiritual life, that the Holy Spirit plants within us, and that's the source of our new birth, then there's a contrast between the perishable seed and the imperishable seed. Again, the perishable seed would be, we're born, we're here today because we were born of perishable seed, of human seed. We have human physical life from perishable parents who die and we will die. We are born of seed that is perishable. We're not born of, well, physically we're born of perishable seed. Spiritually we're born of imperishable seed. A life given not by earthly parents, but by our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Parent, who has caused us to be born again by planting that spiritual life within our soul. That's the seed. This would be the second way to understand it. Man, by our nature, our physical frame is perishable, comes from a perishable seed. We are like dust. James 4 says that you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Physically, we're born a perishable seed. It won't last long. 80, 90 years if you live a long life. It's perishable life. It's perishable seed. But spiritually, we have been born from imperishable seed, from our Heavenly Father who has planted His spiritual life, that seed of life within our soul which cannot die. It's imperishable. That would be the way that I think is the best way to understand these two prepositions. So, what Peter is saying in verse 23 that the reason why, the second reason why you should fervently love one another from the heart is because your heart's been changed. You've been born again 
of imperishable seed. The Holy Spirit has implanted the seed of new spiritual life within your dead soul and you've come alive. You're born again. And how did the Holy Spirit implant that seed of life within your soul? The Holy Spirit being the source, bringing that new life into our soul. It's through the means of, it's through the living and enduring Word of God. So that you have two prepositions. One introduces the source of the new birth, which is the spiritual seed from the Holy Spirit. That's the source of the new birth. And then it's through the living and enduring Word of God. In other words, the Spirit of God does that in us as we listen to the Gospel being preached. So as we hear the Word taught, we listen to the Word of God, and as we hear it, then the Spirit of God plants new life within us. I become alive spiritually. I'm listening to the Gospel. I'm born again, and I believe and trust in the Lord for salvation. So this second view that the seed refers to the new life implanted by the Spirit rather than the Word of God preserves the distinction between the two prepositions. So, I favor this second view that the new nature implanted by the Holy Spirit is the seed. It's imperishable. You can't lose your salvation. You can't lose that new life that's planted within you by the Holy Spirit. And that's the reason why we can love one another. Because our heart has been changed. We've been born again. The Spirit of God has placed His grace and life within us. That's why we can love one another. And that's Peter's second reason. That our new life implanted by the Holy Spirit basically reproduces God's love in the Gospel for Him, for God, and also for one another. So it's, it's a bit complicated, I understand, but I think that's what Peter is actually trying to say. So I look again at the second part of verse 23, the means by which we're born again. It's through the living and enduring Word of God. The Holy Spirit changes our heart through the means of us listening to the living and enduring Word of God. Notice how Peter describes the Bible or the Scriptures, the Word of God, as being living and enduring. It's living, number one, because it reminds us really of Hebrews 4.12, doesn't it? For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So God's Word, the Bible, in its fullness, is living. It's living because it's God breathes. It's living because it possesses the imprint of divinity because it comes from God and it was inspired by the living Spirit of God. It's living meaning it's always vibrant and powerful and dynamic. It's not dead and it's not irrelevant. It's living. The Word of God is always alive for us. It's not a dead book like many people think it is. If I read the Bible, I don't get anything out of it. It's a living book. We need the Spirit of God to understand it. But it's alive. It's a living book. It's inspired by the living God. And also he adds in verse 23 that it's the enduring Word of God. That is, it's not subject to decay. 
is permanent, it's unchanging, its message will never grow old, it will never become obsolete or outdated, it will never be uh, put in a position to where it just doesn't have any meaning. It endures. The Word of God endures. Now, having said that, obviously the Bible is one of the most hated and most loved books of all. Many people hate the Bible, basically. But the Bible will endure all the attacks against it. The Bible will outlast all those who would like to do away with the Holy Scriptures. Now, it's interesting that people, people don't hate the Bible because they think it contradicts itself. They hate the Bible because the Bible contradicts them. It contradicts the way they want to live their life. It contradicts their values. It contradicts what I think ought to be right and wrong. And because the Bible contradicts them, they hate the Bible. But the Bible's going to outlast all that hatred. It is the enduring Word of God. And no skeptic scoffing hammer has ever made a dent in the eternal anvil of God's Word. Jesus Himself said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word shall what? Not pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My Word will endure. It will not pass away. So it is the enduring Word of God. What else do you have that you possess that you can say is, is enduring in that way? Our soul, for sure. No possession that we possess is enduring, but the Word of God is enduring. It's impossible to destroy the Bible, in other words. Yeah, you can burn it in piles. People have throughout church history. You can try to ban it like some countries have banned the Bible. And then it's got to be smuggled in. But the omnipotent power of Almighty God will protect His Word against all enemies. You can imprison the minister of the Word. Paul said that. I've been imprisoned, but he said you cannot imprison the Word of God. It will spread. The Spirit of God will continue to cause it to grow and bring in the Kingdom of God. The philosophies of the world may try to choke it out or smother it out. But the Spirit of God will continue to sustain the power and the life of the Word of God. So that in the end, no matter how many people mock the Bible and scoff at the Bible, the Scriptures will prevail and they will not. Because we are born of God, of an imperishable seed who has planted new life within us through the living and enduring Word of God. We will perish, but the Scriptures will not. An interesting uh, illustration of that, if you ever heard of Voltaire, he was the French Enlightenment writer and historian and philosopher of the 18th century. And he was a renowned infidel and had a passionate hatred against Christianity. Voltaire hated the Bible he hated Christians and he even prophesied and boasted that he was seeing in his own day and age the twilight of Christianity and before long the, the darkness would soon cover it over forever. And he honestly believed that in his own time there would not be a Bible left on the earth 
except those locked away in some museum as a relic of antiquity. He hated the Bible and believed that it was about to be extinguished on the earth and have basically no value and no impact on society ever again. He believed that. Now, it was coming soon in his own time. And yet, he died in the year 1778. And only 16 years after Voltaire's death, the very printing presses that were used to print his own works were now being used to print the Bible. And the very he had bought a large supply of very high quality paper to present to to print some of his own works with, and even the paper was used on his printing presses to print the Bible. And even almost more amazing than that, 58 years after his death, in a twist of providence, the very house in which Voltaire lived and wrote his his uh, blasphemous works in was used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for Bibles and Gospel tracts. So Voltaire believed that, that he was seeing the extinction of the Scriptures, that the darkness was rolling in, but he totally missed it. He was the one that perished, but the Word of God did not. It continued on. And there was a great revival of the Scriptures following his era. All this is to prove that God's Word is living and enduring and is still an anchor for our souls today. Peter goes on in verse 24 and then he wants to back up this idea that the Bible, the Scriptures, the Word of God is the living and enduring Word of God. So he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40. And this is what he writes, quoting Isaiah chapter 40. He says, all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That word endures forever at the end of verse, at the beginning of verse 25 is the same word endures at the end of verse 23, the enduring word of God. So now he quotes Scripture that says it's the enduring Word of God. It will endure forever. It's interesting in Isaiah, the context that Peter is pulling this verse out of is that Isaiah has prophesied that Judah, the southern kingdom, would be invaded by the Babylonians. That hasn't happened yet in Isaiah's day, but it will. And he prophesies that the Babylonians are going to come in because of Israel's sin and idolatry. And they're going to come in and invade the city of Jerusalem and destroy the city of Jerusalem and destroy your temple. And not only that, because of your sin, you're going to be captured and led off as slaves in Babylon for the Babylonian captivity period. And it's during those days as he prophesies this taking place in the future that the Jews living in Babylon being uprooted from their homeland and carted off to some pagan, heathen, Gentile nation will become discouraged and become 
and began to question God's love and covenant promises to them. In their mind, Isaiah foresees that the Jews off in Babylon will be discouraged and they'll begin to think that the Babylonian Empire that has conquered us is invincible. Their kingdom is going to last forever. They will never be overthrown. That we will never get out of this place. We'll never make it back to our homeland. That Babylon is too powerful. They're too great. They're going to last forever. And in that discouragement, Isaiah brings this incredible promise to the Jews speaking prophetically when he says, all flesh is like grass. And that includes Babylonian flesh as well. And all of its glory, like the flower of grass, all of the the buildings and all of the gardens and all of the wealth of Babylon is but like the flower of the grass. And the grass withers and the flower falls off because Babylon will soon end. They are made of perishable human flesh and they will die and end. They will not rule forever. They will be conquered and subdued. They will die. But the Word of the Lord endures forever and ever. That is your hope. Don't be discouraged by, what, by looking around and seeing the evil of men and the triumph of men and the successes of men and the oppression of men. They are doomed to die. Put your faith in the promises of God's Holy Word for it will endure forever. And that is the encouragement that Isaiah gave to the Jews off in the future when they are living in Babylon discouraged by the seemingly invincible character of the Babylonian kingdom. So God gives to those Jews a message of comfort and hope and a promise of deliverance and restoration. I have promised I will bring you back into the land. God's Word will bring it to pass. Don't fear the Babylonians. God's Word will come to pass. Man will die. God's Word lives. Babylonians are but mere men. They are perishable seed. But God's Word is eternal. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. Forever, Your Word is settled in heaven. And again, the words of Jesus, that heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. And then to wrap it up, at the end of verse 25, Peter throws out this additional comment. This is the Word which was preached to you. So now he's drawing back to this quotation from Isaiah. And I think in his mind, he's enlarging it to grasp many of the other prophecies of Isaiah. Not only that grass, man is like grass and will wither and the flower will fall off, but the Word of God endures forever. But he says, this is the Word that was preached to you. We brought to you Isaiah's prophecy. Not only about him restoring you back to the land, 
but also the prophecies of Isaiah about the coming Messiah. The Messiah who would come and be born of a virgin. The Messiah who would be anointed with the Holy Spirit to preach the Gospel and heal the sick. The Messiah who would be called Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. He would be the stem of Jesse to restore David's kingdom. The Messiah who would come and bring about a glorious restoration for the Jews after their exile. But this Messiah would also be a suffering servant who would be the light to the nations, who would take away the sins of the people and be raised from the dead. We preach this Word to you. The living, enduring Word of God. The everlasting Gospel. We have preached that to you. And much of it came from the book of Isaiah. So the Gospel that Peter says we preach to you comes directly out of God's eternal Word. That's why you can trust it. can't trust the promises of men. You can trust the promises of Almighty God. He has promises to, to save sinners and he is, His promise will come true for anyone who comes to Christ and places their trust in Him. So Peter's audience, his readers, are in some way kind of like the Jews in Isaiah's prophetic days. They are exiles too. They are exiles into a foreign land. They're still on this earth. And they too must wait for God to fulfill His future promises of deliverance. And wait for God to bring them into their heavenly promised land. They're not there yet. They're enduring trials and persecutions in their life. But like the Jews in Babylon, they need to put their faith and trust in the promises of God which endure forever. God's promises are as good as gold. In fact, they're better than gold because gold is perishable. But the Word of God endures forever. So this is the point I think that Peter is making. That God's Word will sustain you as well as it did the Jews in Isaiah's day. And it will sustain you in your love for one another during the time of your pilgrimage on earth as you're making your way to the heavenly city. We are to love one another. And it's the Word of God that will sustain you and sustain your love for one another. For the two reasons that Peter has given to us. Number one, you were converted through the preaching of the Word. The Word of truth. You believed it. And secondly, you've been regenerated through the Word of truth. Through this imperishable, enduring, living Word of God. But it seems as if to tie this together, Peter is saying that the Holy Spirit's chosen instrument of imparting His love, His faith, His grace to you through the Word of God. And when we focus our minds and hearts on the perishable things of this world and this life, these are all things that are destined to wither and die and perish. But when we come back and renew our minds in God's Word, the enduring, eternal Word of God, it replenishes our faith and our love for one another. 
And I think that is the great encouragement for us to stay rooted in the Word of God. Because that is the means, the primary means the Holy Spirit uses to replenish and renew our faith and our love for one another. And I think that's probably what Peter has in mind. And may God stir our hearts to see the eternal treasure that we have in the Word of God. To read it, to study it, to meditate upon it, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, see our love flourish and grow for one another. May God help us to do that. Well, let's close. Our Father, we do thank You again for the opportunity to wrestle with a bit of a challenging passage, Lord, but we thank You that Peter emphasized the importance of the eternal Word of God. And we thank You, Lord, that we still have that treasure. And wise and blessed are those who spend time reading and meditating and renewing their minds in the Word of God. Because that is the way our faith grows. And that is the way our love for one another grows as the Spirit of God works through His Word in our So help us, Lord, to grow in our love for one another as we grow in our love for one another. We ask it in Christ's name.